Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of Tent Talks, I speak with Professor Harry Vanderholst. Professor Vanderholst is full professor of linguistics at the University of Connecticut and director of undergraduate studies at the Yukon Department of Linguistics. He's also editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed linguistics journal, The Linguistic Review. He's a lifetime fellow of the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study, a board member of the European linguistic organization GLOW, and frankly, the accolades just go on and on. Professor Vanderholst's research focuses on phonology. Phonology is a subfield of linguistics that deals with the organization of sounds in languages. This semester, Professor Vanderholst has been sitting in on a philosophy seminar that I'm currently taking called Toxic Speech, and it's within the context of this seminar that him and I really started conversing. The episode that you're about to hear essentially serves as an introduction to linguistics. I begin by asking Professor Vanderholst some general questions about linguistics and the nature of language, and then I proceed to ask him some more specific questions about phonology, which is again the area of linguistics that he specializes in. We had limited time here, and I appreciate Professor Vanderholst taking the time out of his busy schedule to have the conversation with me, and I really learned a lot from this conversation. I'm going to attach Professor Vanderholst's Wikipedia page and his personal website to this podcast. So if you want to learn more about his work, you can refer to those links. So without further ado, I present to you, Dr. Harry Vanderholst. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Okay, so I'm here with Professor Vanderholz, a professor of linguistics at UConn. Thank you for doing this, Professor. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's fun. Right? So we met within the context of the Toxic Speech Seminar. I thought you could just maybe start by saying a few words about your intellectual history and what drove you to sit in on the Toxic Speech Seminar. Yeah, well, if I, if I start with that, um, last year I was a fellow at the Humanities Institute here at UConn with my own pro- project that I can talk about later, but there was also a couple of people there who are interested in uh, public discourse. The director, Michael Lynch, had a long uh, project on, on public discourse and humility, and there were people uh, at the Institute uh, that year who work on that, think about that, and I got into conversations with them, and I got interested in it. and um, so. Then I also met Professor uh, Lynn Torell, who is a new hire in in philosophy, and she works in that domain as well, and uh, more conversations. So then I thought, well, to learn more, it's, you know, I'll go to her seminar. And so this is a new thing for me. Um, Obviously, um, as a linguist, you know, one is always interested in, in all aspects of language, not only my specialization, which is sound structure of language. And in this day and age where, you know, uh, public discourse is deteriorating and uh, where the way that people use language is very important in mobilizing other people to vote a certain way, to approach other people in a certain way, I thought, well, what can I contribute as a linguist? Uh, Even though I'm stepping outside what I normally specialize on. Uh, I'm very interested in this and I, I'll see how it goes, whether I f- 
find the time to uh, learn more about language use, how people use language in public discourse, in speeches, uh, with each other in conversation, and I'll try to do my bit analyzing it and trying to understand which which means people use to manipulate each other, to convince each other. Uh, there's a lot of work on that, so I'm, as I said, I'm new. Uh, it's a new thing that I'm, that I'm interested in. Yeah, I'm really interested in all the work that they're doing at the Humanities Institute, just the work that Michael Lynch is doing on social epistemology mm -hmm. and how uh, the breakdown in our public discourse, especially on social media, is kind of facilitating that. Yep. and how it's kind of silenced us into two like digital echo chambers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought we could just start with, before we hone in on phonology and your work and the, the, the essay that you sent me that I read, we could just start with linguistics. So just for the listeners, what is the study of linguistics? And for me too, because I'm very unfamiliar. <laughs> yeah, it's a very familiar question for me because I'm undergraduate director, so when we have open houses at UConn and parents come with their with their kids to check out UConn and you know different departments have a table there and so linguistics has a table there and and the first thing that people always ask is what is linguistics because it's not something that is taught in high schools and so people have no idea they know it has something to do with language right and um, and that's true. Uh, the first thing I always say is, well, you know, I'm not teaching people languages that, that you find that in language departments. Linguistics is really asking the big question, what is language? Uh, what kind of a communication system is it? Uh, how do we understand that there are so many different languages uh, and yet they all seem to be variations on one theme? So. Another way to ask the big question is, what do languages have in common? And, and what, what is the range of differences that we see uh, between them? So that kind of summarizes what a lot of linguists do, um, trying to understand how it works as a system, as a cognitive system, because you know, we have language in our mind. We have a, a grammar that allows us to speak language, to understand what other people are saying. A little bit like a grammar book, maybe, but you know, uh, structured perhaps differently. So linguists try to understand how that mental system works, uh, and then also how children acquire it. How does it grow in the in the mind of the child? And that immediately triggers uh, a question that has been on the radar of linguists for many decades, namely. Uh, do children approach that task with some sort of innate system that is already in place? Yeah. Uh, so this brings <clears throat> us, you know, right into the nature-nurture question. And Which is a book that you just finished writing, correct? Yeah, I teach a large undergraduate course called Language and Mind that focuses on these issues. Uh, is there an innate language system? Uh, obviously, language is not completely innate because then I guess we would all be speaking the same language uh, across the planet. Yeah. So, but is it a part of it innate, um, and how does it interact with learning, with language that children are exposed to? And that is, I always stress, that's like the, the good old nature-nurture question. But then applied to language, so we examine in that course what kind of arguments people have used to support the idea that there is some sort of innate system. Uh, but that leaves a lot of questions open, even if you say yes, even if you believe there must be something there. Um, what is it exactly? That is still very much an open question. Uh, 
but clearly, you know, the human species has some sort of mental system that, for example, uh, you know, our cousins, the chimpanzees, do not have, uh, that allows us to become users of languages. Well, yeah, I want to ask that real quick. Do, can we say that non-human animals have language? They certainly have some sophisticated communication systems, but what are some features that separate human communication systems or language from those other communication yeah, systems? It so happens that actually my course, Language and Mind, was dealing with that very question today. <laughs> so I'm warmed up. <laughs> um, Take it away. Um, yeah, all, animal, uh, all animals, uh, non-human animals, have communication systems, and, and studying those is a, is a blooming field of science. Um, what we learn, or what you can learn from the literature if you uh, read about that, that kind of thing, is that different species have different communication systems. And whether you call them all languages or communication systems, uh, I don't care so much about that. I mean, it's very common to talk about the language of the bees and you know, the language of the chimpanzee, and that's fine. That's a way that people use that word language. Um, one could, I tend to do that in my course, uh, say, well, let's, let's call that particular system that humans use, let's call that language and let's call all the other things communication systems. But it's really a terminological issue, it's not so important. And it is quite clear that other animal species use communication systems that uh, serve the purposes of those species. Today I was, it's practically inevitable, I was talking about the bee dance, the language of the bees, how they, um, yeah, I say talk, you know, talk about food sources and where to find them. And that's, it's well known that that is an extremely sophisticated system. And the per person who first studied it in detail, an Austrian scientist, Carl von Frisch, he actually got the Nobel Prize for his work on this language of the bees. So, yeah, but, you know, people study bird song, whale song, People study gesture systems as used by chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, communication systems are all around, and um, but they're all different. So I always say every species gets the communication system that it deserves or that it needs. Mm. Um, and that, I think, in terms of evolution, explains why different species got to have different systems and got to have innate predispositions for these respective systems. And then there are some features of human language that are truly unique, right? Like isn't one this concept of recursivity where human beings can just construct an infinite amount of different novel sentences? Like most sentences that we're uttering are completely novel. They've never been uttered in the history of humanity before. Like no one's ever put this precise ordering of words together. Yeah. Is that unique? Well, that's what, so, you know, one of the big names in linguistics is uh, Noam Chomsky, who has been around for many, many, many decades. Uh, and he's more on the nature side of things, So he, right? yeah, he, so, you know, in the 1960s, he put this, this thing on the table that, there, that human beings have an innate system for language. Um, he may not have been the first to say that, but, in the, in, you know, having had decades of behaviorism, uh, especially in the United States, where... Um, there was no emphasis, there could be no emphasis on innate systems, everything due to learning. Uh, so Chomsky came uh, um, with this idea of innateness and uh, it's been on the table ever since and he has himself um, initially, 
he his point was that a lot of language is innate, and uh, and and recently he has sort of retreated to a claim that that what is unique about human language uh, is this property that you refer to recursion that you can put a sentence inside a sentence inside a sentence and there's no mm-hmm. uh, logical endpoint to that um, so there are all sorts of ways in languages which allow you to make uh, longer and more sentences uh, so there is no finite set of sentences there is no longest sentence and that according to the, the Chomsky of today and, and uh, other people is the hallmark of human language this notion of recursion mm. and here's the there is here a claim that um, this is not only a property of language it's a property of the human mind and so the claim here is that that only the human mind uh, yeah, can wrap its mind around <laughs> this idea of recursion that that other animal minds uh, they, they simply can't do it which of course triggers research where people try to show that other people, uh, other not other people, other animals can do it. Mm. So you know, you make a bold claim, you get people trying to falsify it. So, yeah. So recursion. Um, so I would say the idea is uh, that language is a system that makes use of a lot of different co- cognitive modules or systems, uh, many of which we may share with other animal species. Some perhaps not, like the, the, the infamous recursion, and that it's the particular constellation of mental systems uh, that humans have that gives this particular system that we call language. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. So a few other general questions about linguistics before we hone in on phonology. So first, what's a dialect, and how do you distinguish languages from dialects? Because that's another prominent. Yeah, that's another here, right? prominent question, and. And I'm just throwing huge questions at you. Yeah, no, these are questions that, that are on people's mind when they think about language. And um, most linguists would say that there is no a principled distinction between a dialect and a language, that languages, language as a whole occurs in many varieties. Uh, many of those varieties are so different from each other that people can't communicate with each other. So there is no mutual intelligibility. And that is usually a criterion that people use in practice to say that if there's no mutual intelligibility, then you can honestly say there are two different languages. But there's a lot of gray area there. Yeah, mutual intelligibility is is also scalar because you know how much do you need to understand from another way that people yeah. speak. Uh, so languages occur in 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 many varieties. Ultimately, um, you and I may both use English, but ultimately our Englishes are not the same either. We don't know yeah. the same words. We may not use the same constructions. Um, so ultimately, there are you know as many people call that idiolects, as many unique systems as there are people on the planet. And then okay, so the idiolect is like my own personal yes, language yeah. use. Okay. Yeah, and then you can lump people together who belong to a certain social class or a country. Sometimes people jokingly say. If a dialect has an army, then we call it a language. You know, that is <laughs> what is behind that is the idea that languages are associated with, with uh, countries, with units that, that have political independence. So there's no like principal theoretical difference between no, them necessarily? No, I, I would uh, subscribe to that and I think most linguists would do that. Okay. So some different, correct me if I'm wrong here, some different just subfields of linguistics. There's 
there's the study of grammar, and that's the assembly of words, phrases, or sentences. There's phonology, which is your specialty, the study of sound. Semantics, the study of meaning. Pragmatics, the study of use of language and conversation. And that all concerns how language works. And then there are people who are studying how it's processed, and that goes by the name of psycholinguistics, how it's acquired, uh, how it's computed. So I guess what, what is phonol phonology, in a few words? Yeah, so as you correctly point out, there are many different uh, angles from which you can look at language. Language is kind of a complex thing. Uh, it, language also intersects with so many other things that are human. Uh, languages are used in society, so you can look at the how you know the structure of the society uh, influences language use, and that gives rise to what we call sociolinguistics. And indeed, you can ask about how is language processed by speakers, uh, and that gives rise to psycholinguistics. You can ask, you know, where in the brain is language processed, and uh, that gives rise to neurolinguistics. So there are a lot of um, intersections with other fields uh, because language, it touches everything in, in uh, human life. Um, so there are all these intersections, but then you can also try to look at language by itself, so to speak, as a system. Uh, and then, as I said earlier, you can say, okay, we have, we have a mental grammar uh, as part of our mind, a module that allows us to uh, to do language, uh, but that's also complex because what does it mean to know a language? Uh, it means, if you focus on words first, it means you know how to pronounce it, you know what it means, you know whether it's a noun or a verb, um, and that you can sort of bring to a higher level because words are combined to form sentences. Uh, that means that sentences have a structure how the words are put together, that we call that syntax. Mm -hmm. uh, but sentences also have a sound shape, because if all the words have a sound shape, then the whole sentence also has a sound shape. And you can focus on that. Uh, and then, of course, it means something. Somebody once jokingly say, you know, um, um, it's all about meaning. Uh, we use language to convey ideas, to draw people's attention to things. So it means something. So. People who focus on meaning, they, they, we call that semantics. Mm -hmm. People who focus on the structure of sentences in terms of the words, it's called syntax. And then people who focus on how it all sounds, either as words or as sentences. Yeah, those people are called phonologists. And somewhere a long time ago, I stumbled into phonology as something that I was going to uh, specialize in. Um, what drew your interest to phonology in particular? Was there a particular article that you read that really no, piqued your interest? A, or? I studied in Holland. I, that's, I'm, I'm a Dutch native and I studied uh, Dutch language and literature. That was my major in Holland. And I was actually more interested in literature than in, in the language or the linguistic part. Um, but I needed at some point a job and uh, there was a linguistic professor who needed an assistant. and. Um, I got that job and as a consequence I had more exposure to linguistics, I helped him with, uh, he was writing a book about language change and he was uh, teaching courses and at some point I had to teach one of his courses and so I, that's why I say I stumbled into it, but then you get to learn more about it um, and um, I found it very appealing so I shifted away <coughs> from my lit literary interests mm. uh, into 
the science of linguistics. And, uh, and why did I do phonology? Why didn't I study sentence structure? Uh, again, I had a, I had a buddy in, in, uh, I studied with, and, and we were both, we both got sucked into the linguistics uh, discipline. And, and he was more into syntax. And so we said, oh, okay, we're not going to do the same thing here because then we're going to compete with each other. So, <laughs> so I was doing the sound structure, he was doing the syntax. And, um, and that's, uh, that's how it was. And it, it's been my specialization ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you have to think of it this way. Um, phonology deals, uh, if we talk about words, okay? So phonology deals with the sound structure of words. So there is a structure there. Yeah, right. So I, you, you talk about how the sound structure is compositional and it's hierarchical and yeah. it's not holistic, right? It's not right. like we just process the whole sound. We process little bits. So yeah. if I say the word cat, it's composed of individual sound units, k, yeah. a, t. So what is the hierarchy there? I guess there are phonemes, there are morphemes, that's kind yeah. of a higher level sound structure. Yeah. When I took an intro to linguistics class when I was in college, we were taught that phonemes were like the most fundamental sound units. But then in reading your article, I learned that that's apparently not the case. There are even more fundamental sound units called features. Yeah. So I guess in what sense is sound structure compositional? And also, what are some advantages of it being compositional over yeah. holistic? Yeah, I think you, you've got it all, all right. I mean, indeed, um, words, whether it's a word cat or crocodile or uh, whatever words you take, um, is is not a holistic piece of noise. I mean, you could think of it that way, that it's like a, you know an unanalyzable piece of noise. But linguists seem to agree that that's not the case, that, that every language uh, somehow chooses uh, a set of consonants and vowels, uh, and um, languages can differ in that respect. Some languages have three vowels, other languages can have five vowels, and similarly with consonantal systems. And once a language is, has fixed on a set of these units, words can be thought of as being composed out of these units. So a word cat is a consonant, a vowel, and a consonant. And there are restrictions in every language. In, in English, you can't take the, the K first. You can't say kata. That is not a well-formed word. Uh, and uh, that means that there are rules uh, that govern how these phonemes can be combined. Um, and that is, you see that in all languages. Uh, and then if you take a word that is a little bit longer, like crocodile, you can say, okay, the phonemes, it's not just a string of phonemes, a long word like that, but it seems that the phonemes organize themselves into units that we call syllables, crocodile. Mm -hmm. And I know we use that term also with reference to spelling and hyphenation. Mm. And you always have to be careful not to confuse uh, spelling with phonology. There's obviously a relationship there, but it's not the same thing. Uh, so phonemes combine into syllables, and that. So if you build that out further, um, you get a hierarchical organization. And and again, that, so that's something that um, a phonologist will study. Uh, how do languages differ in terms of their syllables? Not every language allows syllables to start with two consonants. Some languages allow only one consonant at the beginning. So there are differences in the consonants and vowels they choose. There are differences in how they organize them into syllables and higher structures. So, but yeah, these phonemes, and I always have to stress that when I talk about this in class, phonemes as such mean nothing. A phoneme has no meaning. The k Just a sound. and the a and the t 
has no meaning as such. So um, you combine the, the ultimate building blocks, but maybe there are smaller ones that you were alluding to that. But for long, people thought that the building blocks of, of uh, the language are phonemes. They have no meaning as such. You, you assemble them into larger units uh, like cat, which then you can assign a meaning to. Right. And once you assign a meaning to a string of phonemes, you call it a morpheme. Mm -hmm. You could say loosely a word. And then you get into a different level of grammar because now you're dealing with units that have a meaning. I'm so, just, I'm um, yeah, go sorry, ahead. I'm remembering random facts from my intro to linguistics class. Um, is, is it the case that when we're born, we are privy to all these different uh, sound units, but then when we learn whatever our native language is, that native language is going to exclude some phonemes. Some yeah. phonemes aren't included in that native language. Yeah. So once we become competent in that native language, we, 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 become, we become kind of ear blind to different phonemes that we wouldn't be ear blind to when we were babies. Yeah. Is that and true? I think you're right. And instead of ear blind, you could say like deaf. Deaf, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Combining my senses. It's a nice metaphor, actually. It's, uh, yeah, no, yeah, there is this uh, uh, understanding that children when they are very young, in the first year of life, they, they can discriminate uh, all sorts of sounds that, that humans can make. Uh, and they can discriminate sounds that, that ultimately would not be sounds of their language. Mm -hmm. So they, um, part of the process of, of acquisition of language is that children have to learn which sounds that one could make uh, are actually what we call distinctive part of the language. So which sounds can you use to differentiate words from each other? Mm -hmm. And that means indeed, as you put it, the child is sort of narrowing down uh, its ability to perceive uh, only those sounds that uh, are crucial uh, to know the language, to know which words differ from other words in terms of their sound structure. So in, in some sense, the child could eventually learn to ignore differences that are not what we call distinctive. So for example, in, in English, the L and the R are different phonemes. Why do we call them different phonemes? Because you have a word like lip and a word like uh, rip, and they're different words in virtue of those two different sounds. Uh, Japanese doesn't discriminate between L and R. Uh, these two sounds um, occur, well, I'll put it quickly, they can occur almost like freely, but they, they're not functionally different in the Japanese language. So in some sense... They don't hear a difference between the two? So in some sense, you could say that eventually, even though a Japanese child would could be tested on actually hearing the difference between them, mm. uh, as the Japanese person grows up in, and into his or her language, they develop this, this sort of selective deafness for that distinction and then they will claim that they don't actually hear the difference between lip and rip so mm. to speak so that yeah so learning is in some sense unlearning right <laughs> child knows a lot <laughs> and has to narrow it down uh, into uh, the system that applies to, to to her language yeah so how do we go about like so when I like when I hear a foreign language it just sounds like a continuous stream of audio right yeah. sometimes I can't even perceive the distinctive words yeah so I get another big question I get but I guess but in terms of what we're hearing it's just a continuous stream of audio how are we able to parse these different 
this stream into distinctive sound units and distinctive words. Yeah, that's one of, that's one of the big questions again. Um, how, do, how do they do it? How do they uh, discriminate uh, individual words in that sound stream? Um, there are different ways to think about it. You could say, well, you know, the child will also hear words sometimes in isolation. Maybe uh, a way in which uh, parents speak to children might sometimes be in one word utterances or simple sentences. So that might give a clue to what words are. And then when you hear a long string, you might actually, you know, detect that substring that you have heard before. But there are also statistical uh, studies of this that if you think of the big string, you know, a sentence as basically a sequence of consonants and vowels, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then um, statistically, uh, combinations that are uh, across word boundaries uh, would be lower in occurrence than uh, combinations that occur within the word. And the idea here is that humans come fine-tuned with a, a sort of a statistical ability that allows uh, uh, children, language learners, uh, to uh, make use of that statistical information. And this has been tested experimentally, uh, and this appears to be the case, that, that, that people are uh, very quick, not just kids, but apparently adults too, are very quick in uh, noticing at some level, uh, they don't have to be conscious of it, noticing these statistical asymmetries. So, but then again, language is also full of small and little cues. Uh, so, you know, the uh, sometimes sounds at the beginning of the word may be pronounced a little bit differently from, from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And that may be a cue. So we call that prosodic markers. Uh, intonation can be a guide uh, for the child to uh, understand where maybe not a word, but maybe a phrase begins or ends. So there are all sorts of cues, statistical, prosodic, uh, and knowing words already from isolation that, that might help the child, you know, getting into that. And yeah, when you hear a language that you don't know, you don't have all these advantages uh, offhand right away. So it sounds like one big stream. Um, yeah, so, um, but it, yeah, so apparently, you know, early on when people started working with, with uh, um, automatic speech recognition, uh, this was one of the big puzzles. Uh, you know, many early speech recognition programs only allowed you to, 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 to utter one word utterances. Because they were unable to parse. Yeah, but and now apparently, you know, the, the uh, technology is, is way advanced and, and uh, it, it got much better. But that was initially one of the very big uh, puzzles, how you, how you parse, in this case by a machine, how you parse uh, a long utterance into chunks. How does this distinction between the articulatory aspects and perceptual aspects of features come into play? So if I could just quote you briefly, you say in your paper, quote, Language users have a mental, perceptual, psychoacoustic image of the sounds that allows them to parse the acoustic speech signal into units that can be matched with words or meaningful parts of complex words. It would seem then that knowledge of sound events has two aspects, an articulatory plan and a perceptual or psychoacoustic image. Yeah. So features have these two different aspects. Yeah, what so to, to comment on the notion of features, so you were already pointing that out earlier on. So initially people took phonemes to be the basic building blocks of the form of language. Uh, so, you know, could say phonemes were like the atoms of, of, of speech. Then they discovered atoms are themselves divisible. 
indeed. So then you get uh, the same thing that you get in physics, that you know the search for the ultimate constituents uh, leads people to ask, are there smaller things than phonemes? So it's an infinite come, regress of sound. All well, the way in down. a way, uh, that yeah, I, you you can see it that way because um, yeah, then people started uh, providing arguments for saying that um, if you have a bunch of phonemes in a language, um, they they may share certain properties like p t k. In English, they are uh, they differ in terms of where you make a constriction in the mouth, but they they uh, share the fact that they are voiceless. The vocal cords are not vibrating. They share their explosive nature. They are explosive sounds. So, uh, if you can show that these these smaller properties actually play a role for the language learner or the language user, then that actually means that you have to take those smaller things. To be the basic building blocks. So, and then people started calling these things features. And you can think of features in two different ways. You can say a feature like uh, uh, voiceless. Well, on the one hand, it's an instruction to how you position your vocal cords, so that is articulation. On the other hand, as a listener, you have to be able to identify the voicelessness or the voicedness in the signal. So from the listener's point of view, these features need to be associated with an acoustic uh, signature or okay. image. So the articulatory aspect has to do with like the shape of your vocal cords yeah. necessary in order to produce the sound. The acoustic is like the sound itself from the perceiver's point of view? Yeah. Yeah, okay. and it's not just the vocal cords, it's also how you position the lips and the tongue. I right. mean, the whole articulatory system. Right. And so a lot of people would say that these features, they are, uh, they are two things. They are an articulatory plan and they are an acoustic image, uh, like two sides of the same coin. Well, but there are people who, who want to argue that one is more important than the other. Right, you and discussed that too. Some people think the articulatory aspect is more fundamental. Yeah, there is this thing that actually a theory that originated uh, from from Yukon, from uh, people working in the uh, the Yukon uh, in in those days linguistic department, uh, phoneticians uh, and in psychology who promoted a theory called the motor theory of speech perception, which was the idea that if you listen to me and you hear what I say, you actually hear it in terms of mentally mimicking the way that I articulate it. Um, it touches on the whole issue of mirror neurons, but maybe we don't have to go there. But so there, there are, that's a, the motor theory is a way of emphasizing the articulatory side of language. And then there are people on the other side of the fence who uh, motivate uh, that the acoustic part is, because that's what you and I share. You could say the acoustic part is what you share. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, so Roman Jakobson, a famous linguist, uh, would argue that the acoustic part is the, uh, the more prominent aspect. Could you prop up the concept of mirror neurons real quick? I've just, I know very little about it and it's yeah. something that I've wanted to learn a little bit more about. But we, yeah. Yeah, we don't have to get too deep into it. It's but. a notion that came up a bunch of years ago when people observed that, that if certain animals uh, perceive another animal, that it, I think it was with chimps, they, they perceive another animal like grasping an apple. Uh, and and um, they, they discovered by accident because they were looking into motor neurons and you know, what part of the brain lights up if, if a chimp uh, executes a certain action, like grasping an apple. And then 
during the experiment, there was a chimp who wasn't doing the action, but he still was linked up to the equipment, and he was seeing the other chimp grasping an apple. Yeah. And then they saw that the, the neurons that, that fire when you actually grab it, also fire, when you perceive another person grab it, or maybe different neurons, but then those neurons that fire when you perceive something, you're not executing it yourself, mm-hmm. were called motor neurons, and that led to a big hype in the literature that people started talking about it a lot, and it, people could link it to a lot of different things. And Yeah, I was teaching a philosophy and film and literature course this summer at Duke, and I came across an article uh, about like the philosophy of film, and they were appealing to the concept of mirror neurons in order to explain kind of our aesthetic attachment to different films mm-hmm. as we're watching the yeah. films, and you kind of see how the concept could be used in that domain as well. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it. Uh, also, it, there is this uh, this whole uh, um, approach called embodiment uh, that um, also applied to word meaning. That you know what what is the meaning of a word? And there is an approach that says, well, the meaning of a word, like the word to walk or something like words that denote an activity. Um, when you hear the word walk, you and somehow you activate part of the the motor cortex that corresponds to walking so that as if as if you construe the meaning of, of uh, uh, words uh, by reenacting or simulating uh, that action so it ties in with all these things as well um, an approach to to meaning yeah so what was it so you don't you don't buy into that view as much the view that the articulatory aspect well, the motor I, view that you just talked about? I, I think I'm sitting on the fence. I mean, I, I think I, uh, when I talk about features, uh, I'm actually finishing a book about that, uh, about features, and I tend to talk about them mostly in terms of articulation. Uh, but that's also because acoustics, acoustic phonetics is not my special uh, field. Uh, I. I Theoretically, I think features are dual. They have an articulatory side and an acoustic side. Mm -hmm. I I don't see a way around that. Um, But actually, to come back to the ultimate constituents, so so I have been developing an idea for many years, but now I'm finishing a book about it, which actually goes beyond the features. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to, to say that features are actually not the basic units either. So I'm trying to uh, construct so the equivalent of string theory, you might say, in physics, but uh, I don't pretend to be as profound. But I like that I'm analogy, though. Trying to uh, show that you can analyze features in terms of even smaller, uh, you know, units, and uh, I think there are actually just only two units that that uh, lie at the b- the bottom or the the foundation of feature systems, but. We don't have to go there. You can read the book when it comes out. You can have another conversation about that. But so it's yeah, there is there is a resemblance between um, you know linguistics and in particular maybe phonology and 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 things like physics and chemistry where you're dealing with a you know compositional system where units combine at various levels and the question uh, will always be on the table: what are the smallest units and I, you know, sometimes people ask me, so, uh, so what do you do? Like you started, and and then one way to put that is, uh, well, you know, I'm dealing with meaningless units because remember phonemes and features and just and sounds. They don't have any. It's meaning. just sound. It has no meaning. So yeah. I, here I am, a student of language, and I'm and I'm studying meaningless things. Yeah. So in that sense, my my interest in that we started with my interest into the toxic speech uh, field is. 
kind of unexpected because then you actually deal with the meaning right. of linguistic units of sentences Much higher and level phrases. of analysis. So maybe I'm compensating for, you know, having been looking at the meaningless side of language for a long time <laughs> and I want to get into the, the meaning side a little bit. But it does it make sense to is it theoretically possible for there to be an infinite regress of sound levels though? Like with reality that's an open question, right? Yeah. It really could be turtles all the way down, but it seems like the inquiry has to come to some yeah. bottom level with respect to phonology. Right? Yeah, I, I think that as far as you know, my, my brain can comprehend these things, I, I, I think there has to be a bottom line. Uh, um, what that is, uh, is maybe still an open question, although... Um, um, and, and a difficult one. And I, but I think in my own work, I've pushed it to the limit because I, I have only two basic units. Now you could say more basic is one unit, and then you get sort of like string theory in, in physics. But uh, I don't even claim to understand that field. But just by way of analogy, you know. So reductionism is always a part, I think, of science. Um, and how far you can go? Well, that's an open question. But I think there has to be a bottom line. Hmm. Just philosophically speaking, I think there has to be a bottom, a bottom line to where you can go. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm wrong in that sense, you know. I yeah. Well, I definitely want to check out that book when it comes out. <laughs> Turning now towards some of your other work. So you talk about, in the paper that I read, you talk about how phonology itself, or you conceptualize phonology as a kind of subsystem of grammar. And you talk about how phonology has its own syntax. So I guess... We've already talked a little bit about this when you're talking about Chomsky, but what is grammar? Uh, what are some different views of grammar? And what do you mean when you say that phonology forms a subsystem of grammar? Be yeah. Because it seems like you know we, we opened up the podcast by distinguishing syntax from phonology. Yeah. So if I can go back to that uh, sort of tripartite yeah. division where you say a word or a sentence has three levels. There is a form. In spoken language, it's a sound system. In sign languages, it's a visual system, actually. So there's a, there's a form, and you can analyze that. And we call that phonology. But then there's also a level of meaning. You can analyze that, and then we call that semantics. And then, kind of in between those two, there is this system uh, of parts of speech uh, that guides the way that you can combine words into sentences and we call that syntax. Now literally syntax just means you know putting together. Mm -hmm. So if you use it in a more liberal sense you can say well if in phonology you're putting together phonemes according to some system you can call that with that extended use of the term syntax you can call that you know the syntactic system of phonology. So again if syntax is just a label for any compositional system where you combine units according to certain principles then uh, you know the meaning structure has its syntax because you're combining conceptual units into a conceptual structure uh, the sound shape has a syntax because you're combining uh, phonemes and well ultimately features and phonemes and syllables so uh, and then there is the syntax syntax what most linguists would understand to be syntax namely how you combine the words into phrases and sentences. Okay, so, so there's kind of sense, two different senses of the word. Yeah, in some sense, people who study sentence structure in terms of words have appropriated the term syntax. <laughs> so we think of syntax as the structure of sentences and phrases. But again, any combinatorial system has a syntax. A, a syntax, if it just means you know putting things together. Right. Okay. And actually, this is again brings us back to the notion of recursion. So. 
um, ultimately recursion results from the fact that you can put things together and make bigger things mm -hmm. and that you can take those bigger things and combine them with other things that you already have combined so there is this ultimately recursion is a consequence of the combinatorial capacity that humans have so Chomsky's point about recursion being unique you could also phrase it like you know is is do only humans have this kind of a combinatorial capacity that leads to hierarchical organization in which, whichever dimension of language, right? Sound meaning uh, syntax proper. Uh, is, it, is it a combinatorial system that humans have? And sometimes people make analogies with tool making. So, you know, one advance in, in human prehistory was the, the emergence of tool making. And first there were tools that consist of one thing, like a stone, uh, but then you know, our ancestors way back started uh, applying uh, methods, combining a stone with a stick <laughs> and, and some, some twine and make, you know, an axe and so combinatorial capacity. And sometimes people like to make that analogy between tool making and language because in both cases you could say there is this combinatorial capacity. Just taking some very basic building blocks and putting them together Make to more form complex. more complex things. And then humans have driven that, you know, to heights that are uh, like, you know, consider how your, your iPod is a compositional thing. And uh, so other animals make tools and, and, you know, I'm sure that there are examples where it looks like they have put two things together. Right. But so you don't know whether composition or co combination is an absolute, like a, a qualitative human property and that others don't have it, or whether it's more like quantitative that, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, you could, you can imagine uh, a, a non-human animal uh, throwing a rock, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a big difference between throwing a rock and shooting a rocket to the moon, <laughs> right? So is, is that a qualitative difference or is it a quantitative difference? So these are questions that, that, uh, you know, people ask. Right. So. You can, so you contrast Chomsky's view of grammar that we've been talking about a lot with this different view of grammar called the three parallel system. So again, Chomsky thinks that we have this innate system. So I guess he would say it was kind of, it's kind of a qualitative difference. Well, right? th that, that notion about tri tripartite and, and, and Chomsky, what, it, what, it, uh, what that is about is so, so Chomsky's view on language is that the syntactic system is the central aspect of language. Right. And syntax is the same. So you, you, you have a, an engine, a mental engine that, that builds a, a syntactic structure. And this mental engine, we come hardwired with into the world? Yeah, we come hardwired with it. And then once you have that structure, you assign it meaning on the one hand and you assign it sound or sign on the other hand. So Chomsky puts syntax as a central component uh, and um, there are other people, uh, one of his former uh, uh, pupils, uh, Ray Jackendorf, uh, he went his own way and he developed a view of language where he puts the syntax, the semantics and the phonology on equal footing. And that leads to that tripartite idea that it's not, uh, it's not syntax is not on a pedestal, uh, but there is some three systems that ha that are coordinated so that there is discussion about what is the right way to look at it i find it still difficult to make up my mind because at some level it would seem that putting putting units together like 
like morphemes into words or words into sentences seems like a central part, but um, there are other aspects of modern thinking where that system is so central that they completely abstract away from sound and meaning that goes too far for me. But I think now we're getting very technical, but um, yeah, these are foundational, you know, deep questions about the nature of that mental grammar. Is that is the three parallel system where phonology, semantics, and syntax are all on the same footing? Is that s- s- posited as being innate, like Chom- Chomsky's? Yeah, as well? I think. Th- I mean, so this person Jackendorf that I mentioned, yeah. uh, he would um, he would also say that that you know uh, people are born hardwired with the ability to construct that kind of a system. And see, and here's another question that comes up when you talk about innateness. Um, there is no doubt that humans, uh, just like any other animal, are born with innate systems, whether you call them instincts or whatever you call them. But the human mind is hardwired genetically differently from the, the mind of a chimpanzee or a dog. Um, and there are, people agree on that too, there are modules there. I mean, you know, you have different neural circuitries that have different functions. And that all seems to be a result of of what we are, genetically speaking. Now, here's the question then. Um, When we talk about language, is there a specific hardwired system for language? Or is it the case that language is a system that emerges uh, in the development by recruiting cognitive systems that also have other functions? And that language is like the the particular combination of mm. cognitive abilities that that we have also for other purposes. So it's not like it's unique. It's not a unique system. Right, it's right. The so, sum total of all these other right. systems. Right, and that's sort of so the the original Chomsky and innateness hypothesis was that there is a unique innate system for language. Mm. Uh, although I have to say that in his own thinking, uh, he has uh, pretty much retreated from that position uh, in the sense that that particular innate system, the way he characterizes it now only comprises recursion or structure building. So um, all other aspects of language are filled in based on cognitive abilities that we may also have for other reasons. So uh, he talks about a narrow language faculty, like the the specific innate faculty for language, Mm -hmm. in his view, would only be syntax. Uh, Now, other people would disagree with that. Uh, Either they disagree with it because they say even syntax is not specific and innate. It's all the interplay of independent systems that have other functions. Uh, or, But other people uh, might say, you know, there is an innate system for language and it is more than just syntax. It also comprises phonology and semantics. And uh, so these are the questions that uh, uh, are on the table with respect to this sort of whole idea of innateness. Is there a, isn't there a big divide in linguistics over people who follow Chomsky and people who don't follow Chomsky? Oh, yeah. Has Chomsky, has Chomsky yeah. fallen out of favor over the past uh, couple of decades, or is he still very much prominent in his ideas? Or I is think, there a move I mean, away? there was a, certainly in the 1960s, uh, there was a big uh, hype with generative grammar, as it was called, Chomsky's ideas. Uh, it, very rapidly, it became very uh, popular in all sorts of linguistic departments uh, in the United States and then also in Europe and other countries. So it was uh, the fashion, so you might say. 
and it pushed away uh, earlier ways of thinking about language that were more popular uh, during the uh, you know the first half uh, of the 20th century and um, so it was, it was a big thing it was a new thing and people jumped on the wagon and, and, and did it and uh, not everybody by the way not everybody some of some you know some people who grew up with that with that earlier way of looking at language uh, you know kept thinking that way and but then you know you could say that eventually they die out <laughs> literally and so yeah it was very popular uh, but over time uh, people have come to see uh, or, or come to have reservations uh, so Chomsky in his approach to languages focused focuses on this grammar by itself. Yeah. He doesn't take into account the social context of language use. Uh, he doesn't take into account that uh, language is not just a mental system, but you also have to produce it. So there is uh, another aspect of language use, and that's where pragmatics com comes in, because pragmatics has a lot to do with how language is used in specific uh, context. Which is largely what we're focusing on within the context of this toxic speech seminar, just like the pragmatics of language. Right. and right. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, uh, I mean, I mentioned Ray Jackendorf, who was initially, you know, one of the star pupils of Chomsky, but he went his own way. There are other uh, people like George Lakoff, who uh, went another way. And so over time, people have come to see limitations in that Chomsky program. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who, uh, you know, are still, and not, that's not like a small number, but there are people who are still, you know, kind of on board. and when Chomsky changes his mind about something, they will be inclined to follow that. And uh, so he, he's, but he still has that impact, in my opinion. He still has that yeah, cause uh, when influence. I, when I took, I partially asked because when I took an intro to linguistics class when I was an undergrad, Chomsky's ideas were conveyed as being the truth of the matter or the yeah. fact of the matter. Then I learned later that maybe yeah. the professor was a Chomsky follower. I don't know. Could be. Yeah. But I learned later that it's more controversial than it was conveyed yeah. to me at first. Yeah, and, and it became more controversial because again, you know, you get a new theory on the table and people like it and they jump on the on the wagon and everybody wants to be part of it. It's exciting. It's new. Uh, but then over time, people start, you know, uh, building different varieties of it. And that's that's the first start. Then it starts up. Not that it crumbles apart, but you get different varieties, and that eventually leads some people to sort of, like say, abandon it and, and and go a different way. And it it has a lot to do with with the dif the difference between seeing language as a mental system that isn't even primarily for communication, but like Ch Chomsky wants to say, you know, this thing we call language is basically uh, a mental system that helps us organizing our thoughts, mm. and the fact that we externalize thoughts. Uh, in this thing that we call, you know, spoken language, is a kind of a secondary thing, and so he not, doesn't. It's not inherently social, according. Right. To so that's that. That follows that Chomsky doesn't necessarily see language as a social phenomenon, and people who do want to see it that way, because they focus on uh, dialectal differences, uh, interpersonal differences. Uh, so they say, well, hey, you're you're leaving something. You're leaving something from language out of the picture here, and that I don't want to leave out of the picture. So you An arguably to, crucial component, right? Yeah, well, that then depends on who you talk to, right? So, yeah. uh, I mean, Chomsky can be extremely, uh, and for some people, pervasively dismissive of uh, other people's th ideas. Hmm. He has very uh, good uh, rhetoric skills to uh, belittle <laughs> other people's point of view. Uh, but um, that, and so, yeah, no doubt a lot of people turn away from it, and, and I, I can't give you a headcount at this moment, but hmm. um, 
the Yukon linguistic department is is very Chomskyan, uh, uh, I would say, and that uh, um, you know that manifests itself in the particular research that people do and on the grammar by itself, the syntactic system, the phonological system, the semantic system. Hmm. Yeah. So we're quickly running out of time here. I guess maybe one more question. I'll go with a general question as opposed to a particular question about phonology. This is a question I wanted to ask right at the beginning. When did language develop? When did human beings start speaking language as we know it now? How long has that been a part of human history? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I just want to add with this focus on phonology that, that yeah, yeah. somewhere in the 90s I got interested in sign languages and that was yeah. initially a strange thing to do because, I meant to ask about you know, that sign languages have no sound so how can you do phonology of sign languages yeah, but right. it, I learned from that that what we talk about in phonology is how language manifests itself uh, in a per perceptible way yeah. now that can be sound and because people always studied sound languages they called it phonology but language can also manifest itself in the visual dimension and then you get into sign languages. So we actually call that phonology also. We use the term phon or phonology like metaphorically. Uh, Yukon linguistics also has a focus on sign languages. I just wanted to put that in, but it links to the question you're asking here. So how did language start? And also sign languages are full-blown languages, right? Uh, like absolutely. they're just as complex as spoken that, language. That is which now is... an undisputed fact mm -hmm. that, that these are not, uh, I mean, when I talk about it in my language and mind class, I go through a number of misunderstandings that people may have, that they're primitive and that they're, you know, fabricated by people. And, and all these things are, are untrue. No, no, no. Uh, the spoken component isn't necessary. For no, language. absolutely not. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, you know, American Sign Language and, and, and American English are two different languages, just like American English and, and Spanish. Or So they're different languages. I think uh, you even note in the paper that you could potentially construct a language just via touch. Well, yeah, if you think, if you start thinking about, you know, language is something that uh, it, we, are, we are not telepathic, so language only works if we have something perceptible that we can link to something mental, right? So uh, sound, a visual display, yeah, ultimately you could say uh, you can do that with touch. I mean, there are, you know, people who are blind and deaf, and they communicate with each other using a tactile language. Now, I've never studied that per, per se, but that is, uh, you know, a communication system. It may be derived from signing, and we don't have to go into that. But yeah, you could say in principle, every perceptual system could deliver a language. In human history or prehistory, uh, it was spoken language and signed language that led to these systems with that rich grammatical structure. And so now from an evolutionary point of view, you could say, well, which one came first? Was spoken language first, or was gestural language first, sign language first? Mm. Um, well, we don't know. I mean, language emerged a long time ago when our ancestors were still running around in, in Africa. Uh, and nobody knows when a system that you could call language in the modern sense emerged. And we will never know. Uh, unless somebody has a time machine or something like that, we will never know. But and for a long time in history, people uh, didn't want to talk about evolution of language anymore because it leads to so much speculation. Like, you know, in the absence of real data, there are a gazillion different theories, right? So, um, but that has changed in the last couple of decades. People are turning back to that question, uh, approaching it in a very interdisciplinary way by uh, looking at animal, non-human animal communication systems, by using com computational methods, uh, by uh, 
learning about how the brain works and how the brain computes things. Uh, so there's all sorts of uh, um, collaborations on this question. And it, I think people are getting closer to interesting answers. But sometimes people say, well, these answers can never be testable hypotheses because, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have the relevant facts. So that makes the area sometimes uh, controversial. On the other hand, uh, people find it uh, so enticing that, you know, it has to do with we want to know where we came from. We want to know where our, one of our most characteristic systems came from. And so people can't stay away from it. And so it's a very lively field, actually, but very interdisciplinary. And, um, and very interesting. Is there a, just like a general guesstimate out there as to when it You arose? mean like time-wise? Yeah, time-wise. Yeah. How that's, many thousands? That's another, it's a very difficult question. You know, um, there was a time that people said, well, look at the archaeological records. And then people say, well, in Europe, 40,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, there is this explosion of creative art. That's a tautology, creative work, art. And how could that be? Well, that's because, you know, language came around. But then other people point out that's a very Eurocentric way of looking at it because people have been making artifacts for much longer. You know, when humans hadn't moved out of Africa, uh, they were making artifacts of various kinds. Uh, they were used uh, use body paint. They would use beads for ornamentation. So um, people make that link between art and, and language because in some sense art is a symbol system. You have, you produce things that stand for something, mm. for an idea. And you could say that's the foundation of language with words and sentences, they stand for something. So people talk about, uh, you know, the symbolic capacity that must have emerged. And it could be that uh, you could link those things because if you can find artifacts that, that uh, reflect a creative mind where people produce symbols, then you could say, well, that's a prerequisite at least for language, because if you don't have a symbolic capacity, you can't have language either. Right. So in that sense, people will always try to to date things. But uh, unfortunately, again, you know, <laughs> the, the dating question is also very difficult. Uh, I mean, people look at other animals, uh, other systems, you know, uh, various animal species use call systems where they have they make noises to, you know, when predators approach. So people might say, well, maybe far, far away in history, prehistory with our ancestors, uh, maybe they started out with systems like that and gradually. Uh, so you can look at the way language is now and kind of reverse engineer mm. how a complex system like that may have emerged in different steps. That might give you an answer to the logical question of language evolution, but still that doesn't give you a timing. Or as to when exactly yeah, it so that, that, uh, But again, uh, you know, genetics might uh, throw light on this if people actually find out that certain genes play a role in language and there are certain beginnings with that, then people could date hmm. the, the evolutionary emergence of certain genes with, you know, in certain forms and maybe genetics will one day, you know, give answers with respect to dating the emergence of certain kinds of abilities. Awesome. Well, I'm mindful of the time now. Uh, we've only scratched the surface of things I'd like to talk about, but I appreciate you coming on, Professor. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was my pleasure.